Simply because it's a golden Labrador training to be a CNI dog, and I have a golden Labrador would never who would not do well <laughs> as a CNI dog. It would lead blind people into the ocean. So uh, to, to swim, because like surely everyone wants to go swimming, isn't that you know that's my dog's main objective in life is to go swimming uh, as far out as possible. We took it, the dog for a walk one time in the middle of winter, just along uh, Harbour Drive, and just let it go in the water for a bit for a swim. It's a winter's day. And um, it just started swimming in circles, but then it just started swimming towards Matakana. <laughs> and I yelled, and I screamed. And the dog didn't do anything. It, it was about eight or nine hundred metres out. It was a long way out. And then it starts raining, and I've got, like, this, at this stage I've got kid, one kid in a pram, and one kid in a And uh, I had to strip down to my underwear and get, the, get like, the six-year-old to look after the two-year-old. <laughs> and wade 900 metres out to find a dog, which by the time I got out there, it was like, like, well and truly lost. I was praying for a shark, but it didn't come. <laughs> and then as I'm coming back, you see all the people on Harbour Drive with their binoculars and their telescopes. <laughs> so I point out the dog just because I imagine bringing my golden over to church and how disastrous that, that would it'd just be disastrous. There'd be no morning tea either. <laughs> Alright, we're in the parables. Uh, let's carry on looking at Jesus and his parables. Uh, mostly I'll be looking at kingdom parables. Um, the way that Jesus uses kingdom parables kind of as an antidote to misunderstandings of the kingdom of God. It's a kind of a different version of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he, he gives these parables that kind of undo ideas that, uh, that people had in regards to what the kingdom would look like. Uh, as we've gone along, I've tried to integrate the idea of the story of your life into the story of the kingdom and vice versa. I wasn't expecting to do that when we started, but we started down that path and it, and, it, and it kind of made sense. And so we'll do that again this morning one more time. So this is probably the last kingdom parable to look at and maybe the last time we tied into your story particularly, but we'll uh, do that this morning. So we're in Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. These are two of the shortest parables. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man finds and hides again. And for his joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Upon finding one of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. They're, they're two very short parables. Uh, they're very similar. But they pack a lot of punch if we are to kind of dig into them a little bit. So there's a reference to a man in the first parable and to a merchant in the second one. Uh, potentially the man in the field stumbles across the treasure. Uh, we don't know. It's left to the imagination. He, he's in a field and he finds treasure. Maybe he was looking for treasure or maybe he just stumbles across it. Not, not sure. Uh, potentially the merchant is searching for something. Maybe the merchant is more conscious, conscious in looking to find something. Again, we're, we're, we're imagining and we're reading in details into the, the story that aren't exactly there for us. Uh, in one parable, it's treasure. That is a picture of the kingdom of God. In the second, it's a pearl of great value. 
Both of them sell all that they have in order to, in the first case, possess the field that has the treasure, in order to possess the treasure, in the second case, to possess the pearl of great value. Uh, it seems, I think, that in these two tiny stories, there has to be some sort of backstory that we can imagine, even if we're not given uh, the details of it. There's some sort of assumed life happening prior to this encounter with the treasure, prior to this encounter with the pearl. There's, there's something going on uh, beforehand. Uh, and it appears that whatever the life the man's been living, whatever life the merchant's been living, it, it's been a life of uh, accomplishment of some sort or another, or achievement of some sort or another, or success of some sort of another. They, they seem to be people that have means. They, they seem to have, have the ability, as we see, to... To sell all they have to buy a field. To sell all they have to buy a, a pearl of great price. So they, they've got a life. They've got a story. They've got some success, some accomplishment, some assets, some, some something. They've built some sort of life. Uh, both have resource available to them. Uh, maybe the field is 800 square meters. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's 10 acres. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I had a quick look on trained me to look at field prices in Tauriko, and uh, a rough quick look, like an 800 square meter field was something like 500,000, and, and 10 acres was something like 4 million, something like that. So, yeah, you can do your own research and change the figures if you want. Just to say, to buy a piece of land, to buy a field, it costs some money. It costs more than $20, so, you know, it's, um, there's some resource there. Um, a pearl in biblical times was a thing of great value. Uh, equally expensive. Uh, the Roman historian Pliny the Elder, he said regarding pearls, they are the topmost rank of all things of price. Is held in pearls. The topmost rank of all things in price was, was to be seen in pearls. And in the Roman Empire, to wear pearls was to display your, your wealth and your fortune and your, your resource and these kinds of things. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were part of high culture and social standing and financial wealth because Pearls came, the best pearls came from like 40 meters deep in the ocean and there's no scuba gear, <coughs> scuba gear. So somebody has to swim down to get them. Uh, so that's dangerous. You, you know, gold, you just dig a, dig a hole in the side of a hill or, or put a hand through water. But pearls, somebody has to be able to free dive 40 meters, which is a decent, a decent effort kind of thing. Uh, as well, uh, there was a mystery regarding pearls because they came into the Roman Empire from the north. That They came from... Uh, exotic places far beyond merchants would get them and, and bring them in. So there's a mystique to pearls as well. And uh, if you're a, if you're um, a trader in these kinds of things, you want to create an air of mystery about them. Uh, guard your sources because they it adds value and mystique to them. So there's this unknown. Where do pearls come from? There's this unknown uh, reality to it. Pliny the other again, he claimed that pearls rose to the sea surface and swallowed dew to achieve their luster and beauty. Uh, other authors suggested that lightning hit an oyster and produced the gem. So in the ancient Near East, you know, these pearls, where do they come from? They, they come from somewhere where you can die trying to get them and somehow lightning hits them. And, you know, so there's, there's a mystique about them. So they're a lot more valuable than they are today. At the turn of the century or the last century, I can't remember, um, Japanese started farming pearls and then you can make pearls out of synthetic products and things like that and they're no longer. But they were of incredible value. And in the parable, we see the man and the merchant literally selling the farm to possess the treasure of the pearl. Selling everything they, they have to 
possess this thing. This is a, this is a, a big reorientation in their story, in their life. Uh, if we change the image of the story of our lives from the, you know, we've been talking about the multiple arcs that, that make the story of our lives, uh, that we've been using for a little while. Perhaps I could help highlight it by um, suggesting that the man in the first parable, the, the merchant in the second, they've built their lives around something. Their story has been built around something or other. Uh, there's a binding of some sort that holds the pages of their story together. Uh, maybe not one thing, maybe it's a multiplicity of bindings that hold their story together. But if you imagine the binding holding the pages of the story together, maybe the thing that orientates them is their nationality or their ethnic identity. Could be that. Uh, perhaps the man inherited great wealth and is currently single and carefree trying to find his way in the world. Perhaps the merchant's a family man with responsibilities and obligations. Uh, maybe they're well educated, maybe, maybe they're not. Uh, maybe the merchant deals in a variety of precious items, not just pearls. Uh, maybe the man has tried his hand as a laborer and a farmer and a sailor and a street food vendor and has done different things and he's trying to, trying to work out what to do with his life. Uh, maybe one's six foot four and strong and athletic and people get out of his way when he walks through the crowd. Maybe the other, the other guy's short and nobody gets out of his way. Satisfactorily or unsatisfactorily, they've built a life. They've organized the life. They've, they've established something of substance and resource and complexity and commitment. Leah was tired. It'd been a long day at Shalom Kindergarten. It was amazing the energy it took to look after 27 toddlers. Ratios in the future, she thought that would be a good thing. And the long afternoons of the Mediterranean summer seemed to drag on forever. The shade of the olive tree in the outdoor play area offered some respite, but she was exhausted. She took solace knowing in four more weeks she'd be on maternity leave. As pregnant as she was, at times just standing up felt like a mammoth effort. She took solace as well knowing that her husband, Micah, would be home from his latest trip, trading far away in the northern parts of the Aegean Sea. He'd mix her a drink, freshly squeezed orange juice, and give her dusty, swollen feet a wash and a massage. She couldn't wait to put her feet up. Turning into Orchard Street with a long single row of orange trees lying in the middle of the boulevard, she was surprised to see so much activity outside of her house. It didn't make sense. Getting closer, it seemed like a moving company was loading new furniture into the house. Her and Micah had talked about refurnishing a room for the baby, but not the whole house. Two familiar carts with two familiar oxen came towards her. Micah the merchant was painted on the side of the carts. Leah didn't recognize the drivers though. Who were they and where were they heading? It was then that she spotted Micah. He had his back to her. He was standing next to a sign and something was written on it. Sold. Leah's heart skipped a beat. Micah, she inquired, drawing closer. He turned and beaming smiled at her. What's going on, she asked. Ecstatic, Micah tried to explain. Leah, I've sold everything. The lot, the house, the carts, the oxen, the entire inventory. I've liquidized every asset. Glancing around, though, Leah couldn't spot any chests of gold. More than that, though, you couldn't sleep in a chest of gold, put your feet up in a chest of gold, offer a house and home to a newborn baby in a chest of gold. 
was starting to tear up. It's okay, said Micah, putting his hand on her shoulder. I'll spend everything we have on this. Smiling, he opened his hand. It was the largest, most perfectly shaped, most beautiful pearl that Leah had ever seen. She burst into tears. Angry, despondent tears of absolute frustration and hopelessness. Perhaps that's the story behind the story. We don't know. We're invited to imagine some of the details. But perhaps putting the story like that helps us to get a sense of the, 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 the punch that these little stories pack. This is, this, is a, this is a big reorientation in life. To sell everything you have to get this pearl, very hard to convince Leah that that is a good idea. That that was a team decision. Very hard to unpack. The kingdom of God isn't something that helps you to possess more. The kingdom is something you give up in order to possess instead. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ in your life, God's alternative arrangement for human affairs, the values and the, the rule and reign of Christ, the ethics of Christ, the, the values of the kingdom outworked in your life. It's something that doesn't add possessions to your world. It's something that you would give up possessions for. Kind of radical. It's tiny little, two tiny little parables, but they're, they're radical in their implication and their invitation. The life of Christ as King, and as that which forms the binding of your life and holds all the pages of the story together. The life of Christ as King as the binding, rather than necessarily our career or our relationships or our income or our assets or our savings or our creativity or whatever it might be. All those things that naturally form a binding that can hold our story together. It's like, oh, I'd give up all of that to have Christ as King as the binding that holds it all together. Micah the merchant gets this. We'll build our life around this pearl of great value is what he's kind of saying. Not all that we have accumulated. We'll actually build our life around this pearl of great value, not, not the other things that we have. Over time, a long obedience in the same direction. He's looking for a story framed around something other than, let's call it worldly success. Those things all have their place, but let's, let's use the term worldly success. And who knows what happens? Maybe... They rent a house and Micah gets a job working for another merchant and he's got some skills so he gets a job working for another merchant and they rent a house in the meantime and they have a baby and maybe he builds up some assets and maybe maybe he gets enough equity to get a small car to go on a trip and to start over again and maybe maybe 40, 50 years later they're, they're back where they were and, and richer for it, maybe. Or maybe not, maybe, maybe they just kind of live a lonely life and tick away and baby comes and they, they have family that help out and he gets a job but never is a great businessman again. Just somebody that works and he's content with that. You don't know how the story unfolds and where it heads but the parable is this invitation to build your life around the kingdom of God rather than all that other stuff and that in doing so the invitation is to live a whole and holy and wholesome life and maybe they grow to be 
beautiful people. That would be the hope. That's the invitation of the parables, to grow to be beautiful humans that you want to be around. And maybe if they had carried on down the business path, the, the quest for more and more and more would have become too much, and maybe there would have been a compromise on character. We, we don't know. We're, we're reading things into the story. But the invitation is to frame your life around the kingdom rather than all these other things. The mystery, of course, is that Jesus also says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And in that passage in Matthew 5 or 6, all the, all the things is the worry about the food and the clothes and the house that we're going to live in and all these kind of very real things that Leah immediately is trying to kind of process with a baby it's the mystery, like, seek first the kingdom of God as righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's a difficult invitation, and a challenging, and a provocative, and a hard invitation to kind of get your head around. Of course, the parable is a mixed bag of the literal and the metaphorical. You don't want to take it too literally. It's a metaphor, and it's a story in order to make a point. Maybe there's some exaggeration going on there to help you to kind of get your head around it. It's a mixed bag of literal and mystery. It is a parable. And yet, a few pages over, in Matthew 19, we have the story of this rich young ruler who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To inherit the kingdom of God and to inherit the rule and reign of God. What, what must I do? I've kept all the commandments. I've done this and this and this. And Jesus says, one more thing you lack. You need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then you will be perfect. And the story is not, and he was stoked about that and did that the next day. The story is that he went away very sad because he had great riches, great wealth. To be perfect, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount from a long time ago, which I don't expect you to, but I often talk about being holy, whole, and wholesome. There's this the passage in the Sermon on the Mount which says, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what we kind of imagine is a standard. It's like, well, how can we, how can we live up to the standard and be perfect like God's perfect? No, it's an invitation to be holy, whole, and wholesome, even as your heavenly Father is holy, whole, and wholesome. That's where I get that little line that I, I keep referring to. One thing you still lack: sell everything, and then you will be perfect. Oh, then he will like have achieved. No, no, then he'll be stepping into the holy, whole, and wholesome life that Christ has called him to. It's obviously something happening with the rich young ruler that he's not living the holy, whole, and wholesome life because these things are possessing him rather than him possessing those things. And again, there's a, still a mystery to it because it's not, oh, we all need to do that. No, that, that's not the lesson necessarily. It's more complicated than that. Certainly the lesson is what holds my heart? What possesses me? What do I possess? I, there was a story that went around. It was probably one of those original memes when the internet first came out. And I had a pastor that was very keen on finding memes on the internet from Pastor James. There's a story about some guy with a flash car and the kid came out and was hammering the car and then the dad hammered the kid's hands with the hammer. It was an awful story, but... Don't tell that story, that's terrible. But I remember when I had a car, I had a, I got a car, but I had an old, uh, old car, a 1967 Holden Wagon, painted up and done. It's like, I knew that story. It's like, yeah, I own the car. The car doesn't own me. The kids can climb and do what kids will do in the car. It's like, that's the question. Do you possess it or does it possess you? 
they were always fascinated by what the handles were for windows. Like, what are those? Where's the button? But the challenge of the parable is, what is it that you most want to possess in your life? The rule and reign of Christ, then, would you give up everything in order to possess that? And to become the whole and holy person that you're called to be? Or are you possessed by the things of life and you'd rather hold on to some of them even though that kind of short circuits you becoming the person that you could be? Where, where are you going to go? Where, which, which road are you going to go to? It's a mystery and a paradox though. What's irrefutable though is that the kingdom of God asks everything of you and yet at the same time it leads into fullness of life like nothing else can there's no worthy substitute to Christ as king I didn't know the queen was passing away in the room I've joked before how it's easier to give everything to God when you're young and you don't have everything or anything you know we're like 17 at a youth camp you're like, give me my heart, give me everything, it's all yours, like, everything I own is yours, and you don't actually own anything, like, three G.I. Joes, and there's seven dollars in your check account, kind of thing, it's like, I give it all to you, God, and it's like, wow, what an amazing commitment you made as a 17-year-old, and you didn't have anything, give it all to God. It's harder if you're the rich young ruler, but the reality is most of us probably weren't rich young rulers, so it's like, we were just young and not rich or rulers, and we just gave it all to God, even my children. But scripture confronts us in different ways at different ages and stages in our lives. I wonder to what degree we dismiss the story of the rich young ruler because, well, we were never the rich young ruler. Or maybe you're the rich older ruler now. No, it's about a rich young ruler. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, you weren't that. Maybe now you've become essentially a rich older ruler. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you a lot of things that I'd like to give you, particularly my angst and my stresses and my worries. I really want to give all of those things. It confronts us afresh if we are willing to look at it with different lenses at different ages and stages. I can imagine being the Queen's age, 96. Yep, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you everything, it's all yours again. I gave it to you when I was 17. Um, when I was 27, I needed to hold on to it for a while. Now that I'm nearly 97, I don't need it so much. So I give it all back to you, kind of thing. It's like, yeah. You've got to navigate the passage at all the ages and stages. What will I give up to be wholly whole and wholesome? What would, what would I give up to be and become the image bearer that Christ called me to be? What would you give up to be and become the image bearer that Christ has called you to be? What won't you give up? What would you, oh, I'd rather hold on to that and not quite become all I could be in Christ. I, I really, that I, 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 I've found a middle ground that I, I think would be, would be good for My wondering is that the, the fruit of the Judeo-Christian tradition has shaped so much of what we take for granted in the world. Values and ethics and how people are treated and all these kinds of things. But in many ways our modern world is seeking to hold on to the fruit of that 
while sawing the branch that connects it to the tree and to the roots that have produced that fruit in the first instance. And the jury's out as to whether that's even possible. We don't, we don't know if a secular world can preserve all the fruit of the Christian story while divorcing itself from the Christian story. It's, there's, there's things that are happening in our world at, at the moment. I think though as well there's a potential for us as individuals in our discipleship journey to, to find ourselves in a place further down the track from when we were 17 or 18. And to look and go, wow, the fruit of this Christian journey that I've been on has, has produced so many good things in my life. Now I'm not saying we consciously do this, but at an unconscious level, we, the, the fruit that has been produced in our lives from following Christ and the, the ethics and the morals and the values and the stability in relationships and maybe the marriage we have or all number of different things. It's kind of got to this place having been so guided and crafted and stewarded by this, this Christian journey that we're on. That we, when we were 16 and 17, we just like, we're going to do this. And then kind of at a, at a subconscious level, maybe when we're in our 40s, we, we I think that's kind of brought us about as far as it can take us and uh, that's been really good and just kind of pull back on this or let go of this or shut that book up I don't need to read that yeah, I'm not saying we do that consciously but you, as a pastor you kind of notice this at times and you, you see it as I grow and change in different ages and stages of life there's a temptation at times to unconsciously hold on and appreciate the fruit so much but kind of given up on some of the disciplines and commitments and what it was to be grafted in the, into the vine that produced the fruit in the first instance. And so essentially we're kind of sitting on that branch soaring as well. I love it how this is all kind of, look how, you know, because I've been talking about telling the story, if you like, look how I've put my life together so well. It's like, yeah, you've put it together well, but what was guiding and shaping you to kind of put that together well? Was it all the great thoughts that you came up with? Oh, no, no, I was actually really shaped by this discipleship journey that I was on. But now it's all kind of, we're, we're kind of saw that branch. I don't think it's good and wise or healthy. I do think, in many ways, the Christian commitment brings great growth in our teenage and 20 years, you know, our teenage years and our 20s. Kind of thing. I do think after that we kind of can take for granted where we've kind of come to and pull back, but it's to miss out on who you could become over the next 20 years, the next 40 years of your life. I, again, don't have it in my notes to talk about the Queen at all. Um, she's nine, what is she, 96? Church goal her whole life. Committed faith her whole life. Kind of very highly regarded by all sorts of cultures and peoples. In amongst a very complicated history of colonialism and all sorts. It's, it's a complicated backstory. Yet somehow she's been this kind of stalwart kauri tree, this, this kind of rock in an ever-changing world. It's like, oh my God, you give up on that long obedience in the same direction. I'm glad you... It's amazing what the, the, the reputation of this just walking that faithful path for 96 years rather than 51 years. And then... Uh, Throw that out now and kind of do a, do a different 
be found in Christ is to have your story bound and framed by the story of the kingdom. It's the treasure worth selling all for. It's the pearl of great price, a great price to be cherished above all else. I wonder what you'd let go of to be become all that you're called to be. I wonder what you're holding on to that's actually preventing you from being the becoming all you can be. Could be real things in the sense of tangible possessions, but it could be not willing to forgive, or not willing to risk, or not willing to have a go and not willing to discipline oneself. That is a thousand different things. And the Lord guide you in your journey. In Jesus' name. Alright, let's stand in close in prayer. There's other parables that aren't to do with the kingdom of God, particularly. <coughs> parables of judgment and parables of grace and parables of As you go this morning, consider that which binds your life together. It will be a multiplicity of realities. Remember though in all things to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. To allow Christ to be the ultimate binding that gives shape to your story. For Christ and Christ's kingdom is a treasure worth giving all for. The pearl of great price. And as you go this morning, go in the love and the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, grace and peace to you, my brothers and sisters. Enjoy your Sunday. Tea and coffee. Children, if you want to take them home.